persecution of Christians in the 21st century. It is not something that is just real. The persecution of Christians in the 21st century is something that is increasing. Such as the sort of barbarity of attacks on Christians in in other parts of the world that even (laughs) our media, even the Western media is beginning to sort of sit up and take note. But let's not kid ourselves. The persecution of Christians isn't something that is just confined to foreign shores, is it? In various forms, a persecution or opposition of Christians is also on the rise in the United Kingdom. I doubt very much that anyone in here would say that it is not becoming increasingly difficult to live openly as a Christian in Britain in the 21st century. Well, this morning we come to a portion of Scripture, and what do we, what do we have here? It shows, it shows us a Christian who is being persecuted. It shows us a Christian who is arrested and who is beaten. Why? Because he has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, surely because of that, our prayer this morning is yes, that... God, through his word today, might awaken us to the reality of persecution of Christians. And we might be more awake to that, that that's going on today. But also, surely our prayer is that God would prepare us for the fact that, wait a minute, this might happen here. But perhaps primarily our prayer this morning is that in his word, God would remind us of who he is. He's God. I mean, He's, He is sovereign. He is, He's mighty. He can use even the wickedness of man and He can use that for the glory of His name's sake. So, with that said, friends, let's look at these verses, Acts 21. So I would invite you to please, if you haven't, have Acts 21 open in front of you. And what we'll do is we will try and pick out a few things that we learn here. Okay, now the first thing I want us to consider and think about is this. We see here that God can use secular authority. God can use secular authority. Okay? Right, let's let's make it start. Now, if you're here, here last week, uh, you'll know the sort of situation, the background we've got here. Now, you've got the Apostle Paul, and he's arrived in Jerusalem in the last few days. But he has arrived to find that many of the Christians in Jerusalem are actually sort of standing uh, against him. So what he does in order uh, to convince them that he is not set against Moses, that he's not against God and God's law, what he does under advice from the elders of the church is he involves himself, do you remember this? He involves himself in a very unusual purification rite in Jerusalem, okay? And that's supposed to last for a week. But you'll notice at the start of that section that we read there, that even before that purification rite's ended, the worst fears of the elders in the church come to reality. The worst fears come to pass because the Jews, now not the Jewish Christians, But the Jews in Jerusalem, they are whipping the crowd up into this frenzy against the Apostle Paul. Now, notice the accusations that are being made against the Apostle Paul. 
Now, there's a couple of accusations. The first one is that he is against the law of God. Now, we saw last week, that's fine. We know that that's not true. That's a false accusation. Okay, that's the first one. Now, did you notice the second accusation? A bit more sort of kind of specific. He is accused of taking this man, Trophimus, into the inner part of the temple where Gentiles, where Greeks were not allowed to go. Again, we are told there, that's nonsense. Okay, that is also untrue. That's a lie. So you've got false accusations being hurled against the Apostle Paul, but really eh, and truly, it is actually the violence. The violence that is perpetrated against Paul that I want you to appreciate and to truly think about. I mean, this this isn't a group of people. This isn't Jerusalem getting together and shouting at Paul. It's not just that. You know, it's not just that they are sort of spitting at him or I mean, do you see the violence here? Look what we are told. We are told that the whole crowd, you know, the, the, the people at Jerusalem, they lay hands on him. They grab him. Do you see what we're told next? They drag him. That's how scary this would be. They drag him, you know, kicking and screaming, I presume, out of the, the, the temple. Then we are told that they begin to hit him. Like they begin to beat him and the severity of that beating is really drawn out here. Now you see their intention. You see their intention because we are told their intention. This crowd wanted to kill this man. This is a group of religious fanatics and they are wanting to lynch this Christian man. And so because of that, right now I want to speak to you about the overt and physical violence that is perpetrated against Christians in this world today. And I want to speak to you about it because I know that some of you are fearful about this. I know this. You have told me you are scared about this. You know, it's it's currently happening in other lands, isn't it? Christians are getting beaten and, and killed. But what comes here? Like, you know, what what's going to happen when these people who are fighting in Syria... What happens if they come back here? What are they going to do? What about that? Did you see it in the news? That foiled attack on, on a church in Paris just a couple of weeks ago? I mean, 10 years ago, it would be surely inconceivable that we would be in here sort of thinking about attacks on a, a church in the, the city of London. Is it that unlikely just now? Is it? Friends, we need to look at God's word. We need to look at what happens to this persecuted believer here. What happens? Now, you've got the Jews attacking Paul, right? Now, they're seeking to put this guy to death. My question to you is who comes to the rescue here? Who's the rescuer at this point? We learn that a Roman commander, his name is Claudius Lysias, he hears about this attack. And it's very strange that he drops everything and he personally goes to this scene here and it is the Roman soldiers that put an end to this violence. They arrive, it's stressed in the text, they arrive just in the nick of time. They actually, the scene is amazing, they actually literally pick up this Christian and they take him out of the clutches of this group of violent 
religious extremists. Friends, do you see the point here? God, our God, is so powerful that he can even use secular government. He can even use secular authority for the protection and for the care of his people. And we do not think about this. Like, we take this for granted. I mean, think about how blessed we are and have been in this country. And we just never think about this stuff. Friends, God in his unspeakable grace to Britain, he has established laws and he has established governments that for century after century after century have protected his people in this land. Hasn't he? I wonder, because of that, do you see this morning your duty as a Christian? Do you see what it is? What's happening this week? We have an election. Surely one of these, the most important elections in recent times for the future of the church in this country. Do you see your duty? Do you see your responsibility? We must pray. Yes, we pray in thanks for God's historic protection of his people. Yes. We also pray for wisdom this week about who we vote for. But we pray that whomever it is that God establishes in government in this country this month, that he would use them. We pray that God would would bless that government, that through them, that there would be a prospering, that there would be a protection of his people in the United Kingdom. We pray that here, come on, we pray that of other countries too. That as happens here in Jerusalem, that God would use even secular power to halt violence and opposition against his people. So that, what? So that his gospel, you know, his majestic gospel, so that that might go out with freedom. So we see here that God had power to use secular power. Authority, secular authority. Okay. There's a second thing that we should note in these verses. We see here as well that God can use willing believers. God can use willing believers. Okay, I've I've mentioned that in Acts 21, as in parts of the world just now, there is physical violence. There's true, overt physical violence that's happening against believers. But opposition to Christianity and Christians, it comes in other forms as well. So I want to say this to you. And at the end, when we're having tea and coffee, you can say you're totally wrong about this. Okay? Don't say that now. Wait. <laughs> Wait till the end. Here's my assertion. My assertion is that if you are a child of God this morning, if you're a Christian, you know people in your life just now who are angry with Christianity. You can think about it. Some will pop into your mind. For others, it'll take a little bit of time to think about it. But you know people that, for whatever reason it is, these people hate the idea of the church. I mean, they hate it. There's just something in them. They 
hate this idea of the gospel. They hate your involvement in the church. They hate the idea of Jesus Christ. That where in previous generations, the sort of norm for people in the UK, the norm was kind of, you know, indifference towards the church, wasn't it? The norm seemed to be nominalism in this country. Well, that's changed. The norm in this country now, it is antagonism towards the gospel, towards Jesus Christ. So the question we've got to address is, well, what do we do? Like, how do we, if we've got people in our lives just now who are angry with Jesus, how do we, I mean, how do we deal with that? Well, I think here in Acts chapter 21, we learn a couple of crucial lessons from what the Apostle Paul does, okay? One, think about this. We learn here the interaction with people in our lives who are hostile to the gospel. Interaction with these people is important. Tell you what I want you to do. Um, I would ask you just to look at one verse with me. Just one part of a verse. If your Bible's open, just look at the end of verse 39. Let's have a look at the end of verse 39. Now, remember what the scene is. These people have been trying to kill Paul and the Roman soldiers have come in the nick of time. Look at the end of verse 39. Paul speaks to the Roman and he says, please let me speak to the people. Or if, I don't know, some of you are using the ESV. Just now the ESV nails it because the ESV has Paul say to the Roman, I beg you. I beg you, let me speak to these people. Do you see how incredible that is? I mean, given their, the crowd's murderous intent, given their fury and their rage at Paul and the gospel, that Paul would stop and he would say to this Roman soldier, no, please, please, let me speak to them. Let me interact with them. And do you see how he does it as well? I mean, he's so, so calm. Like, if you're anything like me, if, if you're in a conversation one-on-one with someone uh, about the gospel and they're angry, like the temptation sometimes can be uh, to get angry too, you know? They're tense. You get a bit tense. The thing escalates, right? Not Paul. Look at this. He, he calls for quiet. He does this sort of John Piper thing, you know? He's got his hand in the air and he sort of motions with his hand to everyone to be quiet and he speaks to them do you see in aramaic and he diffuses the whole thing do you see it's this picture of of tranquility can we not learn from that you see if we have got people in our lives who are hostile to the gospel you see the goal the goal isn't to get out of the room as quickly as is humanly possible the goal with these people is to engage isn't it and to engage sympathetically And maybe in some ways that just raises a question, doesn't it? Like it's all, I think, it's all very well for, for, for us to say in here, we need to interact with, with people and we need to do it calmly. What do we say? Like I don't know what your calendar's like for this week ahead. I don't know how busy you are, but let's say you are meeting someone for coffee, their friend, who's not a Christian. You know what it's like. You're chatting with them about what's been happening, even what you were up to this weekend. And you mention church. 
I know that as the conversation turns around to that, you can tell that that person is getting, whoa, a bit uncomfortable, slightly irate with this idea that you were at church. You know how that is? What do you say? Well, that takes us to the second thing we see from Paul. Not only are we seeing that interaction is important, we see here that personal testimony is key. Personal testimony. I love it when um, Americans come to visit London City Presbyterian Church. I was chatting to an American about this this week. But I love it because I know what's going to happen when an American speaks to me at the door on the way out. They're going to say two things to me. Usually this happens. One, they'll say something about the accent. Either something positive or sometimes something negative, like we didn't understand anything you said. But the accent will get a mention. And the other thing is that there will be talk of their Scottish roots, you know, that they were they're either Irish or they're Scotsmen as well. Okay, well, do you see here in Acts 21 that that's what Paul does? Like, he's talking about himself, but do you see what he says? He tells these people, he talks about his, his ancestry. I mean, he talks about his, his credibility almost. He was, do you see, a Jew of Jews. He was a Jew. You know that he was brought up in Jerusalem itself, he says to them. And he was taught by Gamaliel himself. You know, the Jew Jews. He was such a Jew that he was even persecuting these Christians. He was joining in with us. Do you see what he's doing? He's not just showing his innocence of all these accusations that are being hurled against him. He is showing them that Christianity wasn't some ungodly, wicked invention of his own mind. He is saying, no, I was a Jew, and I was trying to live faithfully. And what has God done? God has entered in. God has intervened in my life, and he has shown me that Jesus Christ is not one to be persecuted, that he is the righteous one of God. You see what it is? He's faced with someone who is hostile, these hostile people. He's not trying to win an argument. He's not talking about a theological intricacy. He is talking about Jesus. He is giving them a personal testimony of how God's grace has changed this man. Friends, hear this if you hear nothing else. I think what we are talking about in this point of this sermon on this morning, if you are a Christian, I think this is the hardest thing you will ever, ever have to do. To talk to somebody that you know and love, someone who is angry and hostile to the gospel, and to talk to them about Jesus Christ, Is that not the hardest thing to do? What I want you to see, though, is you have got something that you can talk about. You do, don't you? I mean, consider what you were. I mean, consider how we were rooted. Consider that you were under the wrath of God. Surely you can tell people in your lives what God has done for you. Can you not tell that though you did not warrant it in any way, shape, or form, that he has entered into your life, hasn't he? That he's intervened in 
you are like that. Though we like to sort of talk about these things in much more grand ways, that in some ways you too have had a Damascus Road experience. Friends, God has saved you. Do you not see? Your friends need to hear that from you, from your heart, what's happened to you, that the people in your life, the people you work with, they need to hear that. They need to hear that, as Paul says here in verse 16, that Jesus Christ can wash their sins away. So God can use secular authority and God can use willing believers. There's a third and there is a last thing that we need to draw out of these verses that we've read. We see thirdly that God can use anger at Christianity. God can use, what does that mean? God can use anger at Christianity. I think I've said this to some of you before. Uh, but before I came down to London a few years ago, uh, a few of my friends and people close to me and colleagues said, what are you going to London for? <laughs> You've got young kids. Uh, you can't go to London with children. Why don't you go in, in a nice small parish in the north of Scotland somewhere and put your kids into a nice little uh, country school? Why would you take children to London and afterwards you know my wife and I would always laugh at this and sort of because we see the we see the other side of it you know we would always say well as people who were brought up in a small little you know rural Scottish church we would have done anything honestly we would have done anything to have half the opportunities that children in London have we'd have killed for it we would have done anything for it now Here's the thing I want you to think about. We are looking at this section of Scripture and we are looking at it very negatively. Like we're seeing abuse and we are seeing an arrest and we are seeing an attempt to kill Paul and it's, it's doom and gloom, right? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take our attitude towards this portion of Scripture and I want you to flick it on his head. And I want you to see this for what it really is. Now, do you see what I mean? Think about it. If we were to speak to Paul just a couple of days before this, as he's traveling into Jerusalem, <laughs> and if we were to say to Paul, see, Paul, in a couple of days, man, you are going to have an opportunity to stand in the center of Jerusalem, elevated on these steps above the whole of the city and the crowds are going to come before you, Paul, and they are going to be quiet. And you are going to have an opportunity at that point to tell all of the Jews of Jerusalem about the grace of Jesus Christ. And you're going to be able to tell how Christ has saved you and how he's washed your sins away. You know, don't you? You know as well as I do that regardless of how that came about, regardless of the problems that that would mean for Paul, you know that Paul would have done anything to have that chance. You see, God has used the anger of this crowd. He's used the anger at Christianity and he's used it for good. He's used it for the proclamation of his gospel. And friends, you and I need to cling on to that truth that God can use you know, these atrocities that are happening against his church, even today in parts of the world, 
God can use that. That if opposition, if persecution comes to Britain in the next couple of years, if it, if that materializes, guess what? God can use that. God can use your sustained witness this week in the face of the antagonism of your friends. Glory be to God. He can use that. And I want to end with this. Do you see that ultimately God has used anger at Christianity for the salvation of your soul, if you're a Christian? Do you see that? We came into this world and we came in with, with, with such need and such sin and we could do nothing about it. And what has God done? He's taken the initiative and he has sent his son. Here's my question though. How do we respond as humanity to Jesus? How do we respond? We were angry with him. You know, we were from, from his birth. We tried to kill him. He grew up and he taught. And what did we do? We opposed every word. He grew up. We screamed at him away with him. We beat him. We spat at him. We, we had him arrested. We betrayed him. We sentenced him to death. And though it looked as here so dark, do you see that God was in action? That though as humanity we picked up his arm and we raised it to that cross and we picked up a hammer and we nailed nails to his hand. Do you see that as we did that, that God was using anger at Christianity to provide a way of salvation from our sin? Do you see what he has done? Friends, we should look at Acts 21 and we should see Almighty God is almighty here and that he is sovereign today. He has used anger at Christianity and now our Savior Jesus Christ, he is Lord over all and he is using the situation of his people and he is using that for the glory of his great name. Praise be to our God. Let's pray.